This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and this week we're going to take a deep dive thematic look at philanthropy and sport. Um, so I should say, you know, we've done quite a few thematic deep dives um, at the start of this new year, which seems to have gone down quite well. Um, but I do have quite a few interviews in the pipeline, just to reassure anybody who's uh, hankering for any of those, uh, including some very exciting ones. So do stay tuned for that, and hopefully we'll get you know a bit more of a, a balance back on the go. But I've been meaning to take a look at philanthropy and sports for quite a while now. It's definitely been on my long list of, of topics to do. Partly, uh, well obviously because I'm interested in philanthropy but also I've got a long-standing background interest in sports a relatively sort of catholic interest in that I'm I you know I quite like lots of different sports and certainly back in the days before I had kids and I've had plenty of time in my hands uh, I like nothing better than to sit down and watch obscure sports all the time these days where I can I eke out some time to try and watch Wales play rugby but other than that it's uh, slim pickings I'm afraid but you know the the will is still there I guess the other thing that kind of brought it to a head for me recently was um that I been thinking and writing a bit about the role of sports people in philanthropy and kind of getting involved in civil society off the back of the high profile work of Marcus Rashford particularly the Premier League footballer who plays for Manchester United in England here in the UK who's been uh, getting a lot of headlines and a lot of sort of very positive um, write-ups it has to be said for work he's done campaigning largely for the government to support schools to provide uh, free meals during the holidays for children who might otherwise live in food poverty um, during the pandemic and has been hugely successful in doing that and he's branched out more recently into supporting kind of childhood literacy initiatives and I wrote a blog about him and uh, and comparing his and contrasting his philanthropy with Dolly Parton no less um, sort of having a bit of a think about that uh, and then I reached a career highlight uh, even more recently when I was quoted in the football magazine when Saturday comes uh, commenting on why uh, Rashford was such a good philanthropist uh, and that made me think you know now would be a good time to kind of finally get down to, to doing this episode on philanthropy in sport. So I want to think about it in a few different ways as ever and I'm not sure you know I'm going to be able to get to the bottom of lots of these and if I miss out your favourite sporting examples of philanthropic sports people or teams apologies as ever um, but what I wanted to think about was the couple of different ways in which sport and philanthropy interact and have interacted historically and I guess there's a few of these I mean one is that sport is obviously a, a place in which um, people can make lots of money particularly uh, in the modern world and so it's somewhere where people generate wealth and therefore as ever it sort of raises a question about what they do with that wealth uh, up to and including philanthropy um I think it's also interesting to think through um, the the role of sports people as campaigners as well, because I think this is an interesting area that we're seeing come to prominence again now, but it also sort of has quite a rich history of people using the platform that they get through playing sports to speak out on issues either within that sport or, or kind of more broadly. I think there's an interesting question about the relationship between sport and fundraising, kind of sport as a tool for fundraising, um, both by players and celebrities and by the general public, and kind of how that 
that has evolved over time. And then I think there's an interesting set of questions for club sports about the role that the club plays in itself, uh, kind of giving money to charity on a corporate basis, but also as a kind of community anchor and as an organisation that gives a shared sense of identity to groups of people and what that means for philanthropy. So I want to take a look at all of these uh, different kinds of aspects that we could think through. So the first one that I want to, to think about is kind of sports people as philanthropists. So the obvious model here is a kind of, you know, big name sports people who've made millions and millions of dollars playing sport and then set up a personal foundation of some sort um, and kind of give money there. And I think there's lots of big names who kind of fit that template. So David Beckham in football, Roger Federer in tennis, um, Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo as well, footballer, Serena Williams again in tennis, Andre Agassi similarly, and uh, Lance Armstrong in cycling. Uh, more more obviously on Lance Armstrong as a specific case in point uh, shortly and I guess these you know plays into where the money is in sport um, actually in terms of where it's possible to make that much money as an individual in sport because there are I guess only a limited number of places in which you can do that I mean in a sport such as you know my own uh, favorite sport rugby union for instance players are making more money these days than they ever have before but it's still relatively recently that the game was uh, at least nominally entirely amateur uh, and the amounts of money have not kept pace with things like football or kind of individual sports like uh, tennis and certainly you know not with things like motor racing so you know it, it, there's kind of handful of sports in which it's, this could happen and I have to say when I was digging into this and trying to kind of get some background information and interesting stories it's an area in which it's particularly hard to get under the kind of shiny carapace of PR puff and you know nice stories about how wonderful it is um, which makes you realise that there's an extent to which quite a lot of um, the philanthropy that goes on in sports is very heavily tied into a kind of brand management on the part of clubs and individuals or it has a kind of PR element or it's part of a club's community engagement. So it can be very difficult to get objective information and it's not to say that these people are necessarily badly motivated but um, clearly there there is a sort of element of you know enlightened self-interest in there or it's part of a sort of wider strategy for how they present themselves publicly um, and again there's something we'll come on to in a minute but I think at this point it's worth taking a particular look at one of the examples I mentioned earlier around Lance Armstrong um, and his uh, well it was initially called the Lance Armstrong Foundation and it became the Livestrong Foundation and I think this is a really interesting one because obviously he is now a hugely tainted figure um, due to all of the stories that came out about his use of performance enhancing drugs and he kind of denied that for a long time and then eventually kind of broke down and admitted it on the Oprah Winfrey show and you know since then uh, his his name is essentially kind of mud in in those circles and has had a kind of wider knock-on effect about cynicism within cycling as a as a sport as a whole but for Armstrong philanthropy was a not just something he did it was a key part of of his overall brand um, and it was kind of almost at one point uh, difficult to disentangle Armstrong the philanthropist and the role that the Livestrong Foundation and the work he did through that was playing and what cycling was doing in terms of his overall public persona and you know if you think back uh, a few years there were all the the sort of yellow wristbands the live strong ones showing uh, solidarity around cancer causes um, huge amounts of corporate donations pouring into the foundation um, as you know people wanted to be associated with Armstrong and, uh, and his wins in the Tour de France also kind of more commercial partnerships so at one point 
Nike was producing Livestrong branded clothing and so on. And, you know, even things like I um, was looking at an article from back in 2013 when, when it all sort of blew up and um, about Armstrong and, and taking drugs and uh, tracing the, the kind of damage that this caused to his relationship with the Livestrong Foundation, who obviously tried to distance themselves and kind of uh, he resigned as president and they tried to sort of separate themselves out. But it definitely had a, a pretty deleterious effect on, on the foundation as well. But details like saying they, Livestrong had established a founder's circle of donors who each pledged half a million dollars. And then the foundation offered a glamorous incentive, which was finish line tickets at the Tour de France and dinner afterwards at the Four Seasons George V in Paris. So you know, I think it was already at that point when you when you dug into it, like, there was quite a lot of uncomfortable stuff, I think, going on in terms of blurring the line between commercial interests and sort of self-interest on the part of the people involved in that foundation and straightforward philanthropy. And again, there were particular stories I wasn't that well aware of, having not dug into it until I, I started reading around. So there was one uh, example where a consultant who was brought in to, to help with kind of commercial developments for the Livestrong Foundation helped them to set up a website, livestrong.com, um, but as a commercial entity that sold sort of health supplements and things like that. But the branding was all the same as the foundation and the sort of clear and obvious attempt to try and leverage the reputation of the foundation or even to kind of confuse people about the fact that it was somehow affiliated with it. And then, you know, as as all the news began to emerge about Armstrong, it was very clear that his charity and his philanthropy was part of his strategy for managing the reputational damage that was going on. So his lawyers were kind of quite overtly making it a part of their plan to talk about his charitable work and his his, his philanthropy in making a case for why um, you know he shouldn't be stripped of all his titles and, and this kind of thing. And trying to kind of protect his brand and reputation, which is something that definitely goes to um, one of the things I discussed last year on the podcast with John Dean uh, around his book on the Good Glow, which is the kind of deliberate use of um, charity as a way of providing a kind of shield around reputation as a kind of identifier of somebody as a good person, um, and that can be presented as evidence when they're accused of uh, doing something else that is less good. To say, well, how can they be that terrible? You know, look how much money they've given to charity, but as as we all know, um, unfortunately, there are some not very good people who also manage to give very large amounts of uh, money to charity. And as I said before, when Armstrong's reputation eventually was uh, left in tatters, this had a big uh, effect on the Livestrong Foundation. So reading around on this uh, by 2018, uh, I think, which were the most recent records that I was able to find reported, donations and revenue had dipped under $2.5 million and assets that were over $100 million a decade ago down to $46 million, including some restricted funding. So, you know, it's obviously had a big effect on them. They actually had a relaunch, I think, towards the end of last year, that, uh, intending to distance themselves even further from the sort of historical legacy of, of Lance Armstrong. But obviously that's that's kind of an extreme example, and I don't, I'm not suggesting for a second that we should be cynical about all of the involvement of uh, sports people in uh, philanthropy or in kind of professing an interest in philanthropy or setting up a foundation just because Lance Armstrong turned out to be a bit of a wrong one. You know, I think there may be other big money sports stars doing philanthropy primarily for PR reasons, if we're realistic about it. But I think there are plenty others who seem to be genuinely motivated in one way or another, as is the case for philanthropy in most other walks of life. And so at a kind of collective level, there's interesting things like um, in football, there's an initiative called Common Goal that was set up by uh, Juan Mata, which does does quite a lot of work itself. But it's also, I mean, almost feels like a sort of smaller football focused version of the giving pledge so the idea is to kind of get 
individual players and people associated with the games to pledge to give 1% of earnings to a pool fund. And it's been very successful, I think, particularly with female players of the game. So I think 50% of signatories actually are women, which is an interesting phenomenon in terms of where philanthropic effort comes in the world of football more broadly, actually. I think also kind of another thing that's interesting about looking at philanthropy in football is there are some big name individual players at the level of kind of Beckham or Ronaldo, but obviously they are the outliers. And actually, whilst you know players um, within teams in say the Premier League obviously by most people's reckoning are extremely well off they're not at the sort of levels of wealth of, of those outliers and they're where they are doing philanthropy or, or kind of doing charitable activity or setting up foundations it's sort of hard to see how it's primarily driven by PR because it quite, quite a lot of what they does flies so far under the radar and is done at a sort of local level and often they're putting an enormous amount of time and effort in so I think you know players like former Liverpool um, uh, a defender Jamie Carragher or James Milner who currently plays for Liverpool uh, and lots of others um, have their own foundations that they've set up either kind of independently or they're housed within a community foundation or some other structure like that and they kind of quietly get on with doing often very well regarded philanthropy and supporting a kind of wide range of causes often with a, a sort of local focus and if you look on the Professional Football Association they've got a uh, page on player foundations and similarly you know, there's a couple of eye-catching names there people like Steven Gerrard but again there's just you know lots of other players who not many people outside of supporters of a particular team would recognize but they've set up foundations and that's a large part of what they're doing with their money which I think is interesting to see so I guess to me one of the interesting questions there is well why is there a you know is it just the sort of general case that people who make money might think about <clears throat> excuse me giving some of it away or is there something particular around sports people that might drive them towards philanthropy and I think there's a few things here I think it feels like a kind of under-researched area like a lot of things around sport and philanthropy but I can certainly you know stick my finger in the air and proffer a few reasons I mean one is that obviously sports people tend to be you know that much younger they make their money if they're going to early on and then their careers are often over by the point at which a lot of people would only just be starting to make serious money and so actually you've got a very large part of your life sort of stretching out ahead of you and often a big challenge I think for people who finish in professional sport is finding something that gives them a similar sense of focus and purpose after they've left you know the game or the sport that they that they obviously loved and dedicated their lives to and if they've made you know a reasonable amount of money within that one option for them would be to dedicate a part of that time and energy towards philanthropy of, of some sort or another i think even before that during your sporting career Whilst obviously sports people train extremely hard and put a lot of time into to that, and particularly if you're a player also has a high public profile, you've probably got a lot of commitments with sponsors and brands and all this kind of thing. You also do, I think, I get the impression, have a lot of time on your hands. Um, I mean, I know this is a sort of stereotype of the premiership footballer where you either take up golf or gambling, but I guess another option would be to take up philanthropy, which might be a sort of healthier, you know, more sort of socially minded pursuit. So actually, if you've got time on your hands and you're otherwise going to be bored getting involved with philanthropy might be a great way of giving yourself purpose while you are playing uh, whatever game you're still playing. I wonder also whether there's you know in some sports people's minds you know need to kind of justify 
their position and their wealth creation in that you know they might feel like they deserve it in some sense but as with a lot of um, wealthy people if they have any sense of kind of self-awareness about the uh, disparity between them and the large majority of people who are never going to know what it's like to have that kind of wealth they probably need to create in their own minds a narrative about why that is okay and if you know you might well just turn around and go well I'm amazing at this sport at football or whatever sport I've played and therefore I deserve it but I think for some players it needs to be more complex than that and actually the fact that they are able to say they're doing something socially useful with some of the wealth that they have accrued might be a part of kind of explaining to the, themselves why it's okay that that, um, that they are in that position and, and others aren't. And then I guess a, a really interesting one to me is around personal experience of hardship or poverty. So, you know, it's well known that one of the key drivers for people giving philanthropically to or getting involved in charity of any sort is a kind of personal connection to the cause. And, you know, often that might be a kind of something that comes through life experience. Um, so, you know, a relative getting ill or dying or a child being sick. And that might be the case for, for foot, you know, for footballers or sports people. But because they're that much younger, I guess, in a way, they probably haven't had the chance to have as many of those life experiences. But for some of them, what they may have is personal experience of having lived at least past part of their life in kind of um, less well-off circumstances because sport is still I think even in this day and age one of the few places that's genuinely meritocratic in at least some sense and that people from those least privileged backgrounds have the opportunity to rise above that in some sense and to to end up earning very large amounts of money so you know you have people um, again going back to Marcus Rashford, one of the most interesting things to me about his story is that he acknowledges his personal experience of poverty and, and sort of knowing what it's like to go hungry as something that drives him in the campaigning work that he has done. And similarly, you look at a um, basketball player like LeBron James, he does a lot of uh, work through his foundation, and that is focused again on kind of urban poverty. And he acknowledges that that is something that resonates with him because, um, you know, that is how he was brought up and it was a very kind of poor upbringing, and he remembers that. And I guess in you know, as with all other people to to some extent who have kind of created wealth out of um out of less affluent backgrounds, there's always a danger that you can forget that. But I think in at least a few cases with sports people, uh, and the ones who often I think are most well thought of when it comes to them doing philanthropy, they sort of demonstrate that they haven't forgotten their roots or where they came from, uh, and that they're thinking uh, still about kind of uh, giving something back, having been fortunate themselves. And um, it's interesting to note that this is something that you see throughout history as well. Uh, in some American sports, I was reading, you know, one of the few bits I, I was able to find on the kind of history of, of sporting philanthropy, uh, saying actually quite a few well-known figures in uh, baseball for instance uh, followed this kind of pattern so um, uh, there's a blog that I'll link in the show notes said um, so some of the earliest sports celebrities in America were baseball men with a deep interest in philanthropy many Americans knew know Babe Ruth as one of the greatest hitters in the game they may well be aware of his mythologized life of going from an orphanage to the baseball hall of fame fewer Americans know that Babe Ruth left around six hundred thousand dollars in today's dollars of his estate to his foundation established about 50 months before his death which was in Intended to benefit underprivileged children. Similarly, many Americans know that Ty Cobb was one of the best all-round baseball players ever. They may also have heard stories of his racism and his infamous mean streak. Uh, stories abound of him intentionally spiking members of the opposing team when sliding into base. Fewer Americans know that in 1945, Ty Cobb established a hospital.
hospital in his hometown in Royston, Georgia, in his parents' name, donating $100,000, which is about $1.4 million in today's money. It says, further, this man who never attended college valued education so much he established the Ty Cobb Educational Foundation, which has given over $17 million in academic scholarships to Georgia residents in need of financial assistance. So, um, and that's all taken from a, a blog on Histville, as I say, that I'll link to, which is really interesting uh, to see that it was, um, you know, a template that was set kind of that long ago and, uh, you know, raises interesting questions about the what was driving it. I mean, particularly in Ty Cobb's case, I don't think it could be said to be a PR drive because I don't think it's resulted in much of a uh, rehabilitation of his reputation, which is, from what I understand, not wonderful. But I think there's a really interesting question then about uh, how your upbringing as a sports person, when you do succeed and make money, then influences your approach to philanthropy when, you know, when and if you come to do it, and also how that philanthropy is perceived by others. Um, and this goes to, you know, one of the things I was saying when I was thinking about Marcus Rashford's philanthropy, which is I think there is a genuine sense of authenticity about it that means that people you know like what he's doing and are more accepting and much less likely to be cynical about it than they might otherwise would be. And I think this sort of ties into views on wealth more generally, which is when people have a perception that you sort of deserve your wealth and that when you have got that wealth, you are doing something worthwhile with it. They're more likely to be sort of tolerant of the fact that you are richer than they are. I think also maybe there's a, a kind of the levels of wealth we're talking about with sports people are not quite at the kind of Jeff Bezos billion billionaire uh, level so it's kind of people actually can get their heads around what it means to be a multi-millionaire and that helps as well uh, and that perhaps makes it more aspirational um, since there it seems something realistic that people can aspire to uh, even if they don't necessarily think they're going to get there through sporting prowess which is something I think I gave up on a few years back at this point but I think in terms of, um, of that authenticity I think it also goes along with a certain level of humility as well which is you know another appealing thing I think about Marcus Rashford is you know he's a young man but he sort of acknowledged that and um, has also acknowledged the work of others in the campaigning that he's doing so he has used his position and his privilege as someone who has made quite a lot of money through football and has a clear sort of public profile to support and amplify the work of others but has not taken it over or pretended that he knows better than them he's acknowledged those uh, the work of others at all steps along the way and I think people find that very appealing okay so uh, that brings us to the end of the first section in the next section I want to sort of shift on from thinking about sports people as philanthropists in terms of giving and build on what I was starting to talk about there with Marcus Rashford which is the idea of sports people as campaigners so stay tuned for that So in this section, as I said before the break, I want to think a bit about the role that sports people uh, can and have played as campaigners. Um, so I think this is an interesting one. I guess there's sort of a couple of different things. Firstly, in terms of the way in which you can be a campaigner um, as a sports person, and then also about what the kind of historical trend has been uh, for people doing the, those various different things. So I guess the first is, you know, where participation in sports itself is sort of seen as a form of campaigning. So 
where someone is a pioneer, either because of their gender or their race historically. In terms of playing sports, so you can think of examples like Jackie Robinson in baseball, Althea Gibson in tennis, um, or Jesse Owens uh, is often cited as an example here for you know the the kind of iconic role that he played in the um, the Berlin Olympics in 1936, racing in front of Hitler, and kind of what that said about uh, views on you know eugenics and the master race and that kind of thing. Although I think it's worth saying, as with a lot of this, it you know that's a much more complicated story than it's sometimes presented because actually from Jesse Owens's point of view, that uh, that that moment that is probably presented as a sort of high point of a life and a huge victory may not have felt like it because when he returned to the America, uh, returned to America, he obviously returned to life living under uh, Jim Crow laws. Um, and he was reduced to um, you know menial jobs. He worked in a petrol station for a while and had and had other kind of similar jobs. You know, and where he was uh, racing, uh, he was reduced to doing things like racing against horses for for kind of carnival shows and that sort of thing. So it's a much you know it's a much less kind of um, euphoric story than it's sometimes presented. I think it's also uh, kind of interesting to think whether the person themselves who is playing sport um, and by you know nature of who they are can subsequently be seen as a campaigner or having played an important campaigning role actually thinks of themselves in that way or does anything active to to pursue it so think of examples here like the cricketer basil dolivera who uh was um so he played for england but he was originally from south africa and he was what was termed a caped colored so in the sort of apartheid designations at the time he was not seen as uh black entirely black but he was seen as um not white and so so uh, initially, uh, South Africa at the time, when operating under the apartheid regime, didn't want him to, to come and play uh, on a tour, and England were under a lot of pressure not to allow him to do that. But he did end up playing, and so his mere presence kind of led to important, or lent important weight to the anti-apartheid movement. But he himself never actively campaigned and was sort of quite deliberately silent on it. And I think that's sort of, it's an interesting one, that in terms of apartheid, because that was, you know, very much brought to light the question of the role of sport in relation to politics, because there are, there's obviously the one point of view that is still put forward often by people like board members of the, uh, um, you know, International Olympic Committee, that it's not an appropriate place to to express views about politics and that you should keep uh, politics out of sport. And then, you know, everybody else who sort of looks at that and guffaws and says well that's ridiculous because you know sports and politics have been absolutely inextricably linked since the dawn of time and actually you know sports has always been highly political and used as a sort of theatre particularly in which to to kind of play out a, a soft power version of politics which is about kind of presenting countries on on a national stage and legitimizing them and when it comes to something like apartheid you know the role that touring teams played in uh, accepting or refusing offers to go and play in South Africa was quite important because there were um, certainly an increasing number of international teams refused to go and play there um, out of um, a belief that they didn't want to support that regime. But there were famous kind of rebel tours in in sports like rugby and cricket that, that went over there. And these were seen as kind of huge PR wins for the apartheid regime in South Africa and, and used as such. So sport 
support was obviously being there for to kind of gain additional political legitimacy. So you know, I think it's it's very naive to say that sport uh, can be kept separate from from politics. Um, I guess another form of campaigning where people are thinking more kind of actively about it as sports people is is campaigning for change within the sport itself. And so there are many examples here, I guess, of black athletes campaigning for greater racial equality um, within various different sports. I think there are also famous examples like Billie Jean King campaigning for sort of gender equality within uh, tennis, although obviously it always goes more broadly than that because she's sort of making a point within tennis that that then kind of plays into wider debates about um, the relative kind of capabilities and strengths of uh, men versus women. Um, and then sort of more recently, I guess people like Gareth Thomas, the former Wales rugby captain and British Lion, who came out as gay a number of years ago and has subsequently become you know a very kind of powerful and vocal advocate for recognizing um lgbtq rights within sport um and kind of just getting away from the the stigma that there sadly still is within a lot of um professional uh, male sports around even admitting that, that you are gay in the first place and i think beyond that then the, when we sort of broaden it out from sports people thinking about campaigning within their own sport often you know there's a blurred line but there are people who then have used sport as as a platform from which to talk about much broader issues. So again, kind of one that that I think is interesting and sort of bridges that that divide between within sports and looking more broadly is the iconic example of the sprinter Kathy Freeman. Um, who Australian and at the Sydney Olympics in 2000 was chosen to carry the the flag for Australia who were the hosts and she chose to carry both the the Australian flag and also an Aboriginal flag representing this sort of Aboriginal nation and this was seen as a kind of hugely symbolic gesture uh, and obviously made a point that went much more broadly than sport and I think really famous examples here if we reach back to um, I think sort of you know the 60s and 70s in the the civil rights era you know an iconic one is the example in the Mexico City 1968 Olympics of the the sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos, both black Americans, who won gold and bronze in the 200 metres and the silver was won by an Australian man called Peter Norman. And they um, famously on the podium uh, put on a single black glove each and gave a black power salute. And this was obviously a time of huge kind of civil unrest and race riots in America. And this was uh, a very controversial gesture at the time. And they got pilloried and it basically derailed the the careers of Smith and Carlos uh, and interestingly actually even Peter Norman who who whilst he didn't make a, a salute in solidarity because he felt that would be inappropriate he he deliberately put on a badge signifying I think the International Olympic Committee humanitarian movement in in solidarity with them and even that cost him quite a you know significant part of his career within Australian athletics at the time and other examples you know well-known ones like Muhammad Ali as well who obviously was you know one of the most famous sports people in the world during his career and remains kind of iconic figure and uh, used the platform that he had increasingly to sort of speak out on civil rights um, and and all kinds of other causes and injustices that that he saw in the world very eloquently and I mean the interesting thing when you look at the historical uh, thread of it is that that kind of sporting activism seems to fade somewhat as you go into the 80s and 90s perhaps as sport itself becomes more more commercial and sports people are sort of seen as commercial entities and figureheads and so perhaps they they themselves kind of self-censor and shy away from potentially controversial 
topics that might hurt their careers or their brands or they're kind of told from on high to do that and so you know big name figures of the 80s and 90s in sport that you might otherwise think you know would have been quite uh, vocal on some of these issues like Michael Jordan for instance notably weren't and it was interesting in in uh, doing some research for this I, I saw that John Carlos the one of the sprinters um, mentioned at the 68 Olympics um, he he when asked about this later on in his life because he went on to be a, an activist around civil rights and kind of remained involved in these issues for a long time talking about Michael Jordan and the difference between someone like Michael Jordan and Muhammad Ali said that's the difference between Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan Muhammad Ali will never die he used his skill to say something about the social ills of society of course he was an excellent boxer but he got up and spoke on the issues and because he spoke on the issues he will never die there will be someone else at some time who can do what Jordan could do and then his name will just be pushed down in the mud but they'll still be talking about Ali. Which I think is a really interesting point about, you know, the the perception and the view that history has of those who use their platform to speak up and those who kind of kept quiet. Um, I should say, you know, in Michael Jordan's defence on this, he subsequently, we'll see in a moment, has actually engaged much more with issues around racial justice later on in his career and that sort of ties into something of a resurgence that we've we've seen in recent days. Um, so that, that resurgence is where I want to go next. So I think the interesting thing there is having seen that there's a kind of historical trend for there being quite notable examples of sports people campaigning on issues within their sports but also kind of much broader social issues and issues around uh, race and inequality in, in sort of 50s, 60s, 70s it, it then sort of seemed to to die down somewhat but we're actually seemingly kind of back in a new golden era of sporting campaigning and I think it's you know one of the figures who's most identifiably linked with this and maybe kind of started it in the public consciousness is um, Colin Kaepernick so he's an NFL quarterback I can't actually remember which team he was a quarterback for which is a failing of mine but he became very controversial because he uh, obviously kind of symbolically took the knee during the playing of the US National anthem and this generated a huge kind of culture war controversy about whether this was an appropriate form of, of protest or whether it was disrespectful and, and all these these sorts of things and you know had a really kind of uh, negative effect on Kaepernick's sort of saleability as as an athlete at least initially and in that he was released from his contract he still operates as a free agent I believe within the NFL it, luckily for him I guess Nike decided that they wanted to align themselves with him um, because he was so associated with kind of social and racial justice and so um, he does do advertising work for them and you know despite the fact that he uh, has probably lost quite a lot of money that he otherwise would have had through his playing career um, he is also notably philanthropic as well so he has given over a million dollars um, in the last sort of four or five years um, despite being a free agent um, following a pledge that he made in 2016 to, to do that and to give I think two percent of his his salary at least and he you know supports some pretty interesting for my money causes around things like voter registration and reproductive rights and that kind of thing and US football is actually a bit, you know, a bit of a, a hotbed for this as well um, although interestingly on the, the women's side more than the men's side which is uh, you know perhaps not surprising in that women's football um, at an international level is probably more high profile uh, in the US than uh, than the men's football is and the, the US captain Megan Rapinoe um, became a sort of figurehead uh, around this as well well in that she similarly is kind of very willing to 
to speak up on on social issues and for instance things during the last women's world cup which the us won used the platform that she had there to speak out on sorts of issues of uh, inequality and injustice and particularly to sort of call out then president donald trump and they refused to the team to go to the white house during that time um kind of out of disagreement with many of the stances that he'd taken on uh, things like immigration and lgbtq issues um, and that sort of thing and then you know in this country i kind of mentioned him already marcus rashford i think has become um really high profile for the social campaigning that he's done around free school meals um, and as they say he's kind of branched out into things like um child literacy more recently and you know again i think as a sort of template of a sporting campaigner it'll be really interesting to see where that goes because i think he has been hugely successful by anybody's measure in that you know and almost every turn where he has campaigned for something um the government has then eventually backed down and i don't think for a second that it's solely because of of marcus rashford he clearly is working with other people who have already been working on these issues for a lot longer and he himself would acknowledge that but the the additional public profile that he has brought to bear on those issues seems to have had a really determinate impact on sort of forcing those in power to to kind of make u-turns or to to change decisions that they'd have made which they might otherwise not have felt the pressure to do so i think it's been really interesting it'll be very interesting to see whether it heralds a kind of broader uh, trend for that kind of thing within uk sports and then the, the final example here i think is really interesting is um last year um during the sort of flurry of uh, black lives matter protests and all the focus on racial injustice that followed various shootings and particularly the shooting of um George Floyd, US sports teams were actually, if anything, kind of further ahead than anyone else in doing something about it, seemingly. And there was a, certainly a sense people sort of saying, hang on a minute, you know, have they even kind of overtaken non profits and others in, in taking a stance on some of these issues around racial injustice? So the, the NBA, particularly the National Basketball Association, had like a full boycott of games, which, you know, players were putting themselves out of pocket um although obviously the you know taking a kind of stance of collective action in order to do that so that the milwaukee bucks nba franchise started a three-day boycott in august um and this was in protest at the shooting of jacob blake in kenosha wisconsin and this was then subsequently taken up by other nba uh teams as well and there were lots of sort of solidarity protests and boycotts and the interesting thing was this you know there, there might have been some initial antagonism i guess between you know the players and their their kind of player associations and the league itself but very quickly it seemed as though they were quite strongly aligned and that seems to have continued so you know as part of of dealing with these issues last year the nba so it says the nba board of governors which includes all 30 team owners put together 300 million dollars to establish the first nba foundation and they also made a commitment to kind of annually sustain that through giving 30 million more Um, and the interesting thing about it as well as it's run in association with the players association so it's not just something that seems to be sort of imposed from a corporate level there is involvement uh, by the very players who were the, the kind of driving force behind some of those protests um, and boycotts and it seems to be doing quite interesting things again in terms of you know supporting voter registration drives and making you know stadia available for for uh, voting um, in order to to allow kind of potentially marginalized black communities to to make sure that they get their 
their say in elections. And it, it, the final word on this, I think it's interesting to see what the perception of fans has been on this and kind of what the impact has been on the way in which fans think about players. Because one might assume that actually, you know, people might look at this and think, oh, I don't really, you know, that's I don't want to hear about that kind of thing when I'm watching sports. And, you know, actually, I wish these these players would stop kind of lecturing me on social issues but um there is at least some some kind of uh, indications from some polling that espn did i mean i, I wouldn't say the methodology <laughs> seemed enormously rigorous it seemed like a self-selecting sample of uh people uh via the web so i would with that caveat say you know take them with a pinch of salt but they certainly put it out saying you know more than seven in ten sports fans support teams and athletes speaking out on issues of social justice and racial equality of the 71 percent of fans who supported athletes speaking out in this survey they did said 44% strongly supported it and nearly half of the fans surveyed said they're more likely to support teams and athletes who speak out than they were last year while 20% say they're less likely but I guess this to me is the more interesting bit it's like fans were divided on where that conversation should take place so overall 51% of respondents in the survey felt players should share their views during events while 49% said they should speak out away from the field or court so you know that goes to some I guess what we were saying before about whether it's seen as something that is kind of you know part of your sporting career and like uh using that platform overtly or whether people feel it's sort of fine if you do a bit of that stuff and have it as a side hobby but can you please you know keep quiet while you're uh entertaining me through your uh, you know baseball or basketball or football or whatever um and interestingly as well uh, it said when broken down by race 76 percent of black flan- uh, fans thought athletes should be speaking out while games are being played 61 percent of hispanic fans and 46 percent of white fans thought the same so there's a clear kind of disparity in terms of views which i I guess is absolutely understandable given the nature particularly of the context in which this um, polling was being done and the kinds of issues that um, that the athletes in question were, were speaking out on but it does show that there's kind of quite a lot of nuance in terms of how people think about sporting campaigning. Okay so that brings us to the end of that section. In the next section I want to think a bit about the relationship between sport and fundraising and also about the role that sporting clubs play so stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back for the third and final section. Uh, And in this section, I want to have a bit of a think about uh, sport and fundraising and also to come on to sort of thinking less about sport as an individual pursuit and the kind of philanthropy that that might give rise to and more about sport as a collective activity and particularly the structures that we use to do that and how they relate to uh, charity today and also the kind of historical development of charity. I'm thinking particularly there of sort of sporting clubs and associations. Um, So first on, on the question, in fundraising i think this is a really interesting area obviously there are many ways in which sort of sport has been and continues to be used for fundraising um you know that might be by sporting clubs themselves it might be by players taking part in charity matches uh, and events uh, it might be by ordinary people uh, like you or i doing sports um in order to raise money for charity and you know we see all of those kinds of things today um, and there's certainly a long history of this um there's some wonderful footage that i'll put links in the the show notes to on uh, the british a film collection of events from the 1920s and 30s and earlier than that of kind of charity tennis tournaments and golf tournaments and all these sorts of things lots of very stylish 1920s people uh, standing around uh, raising money playing sport and having a, a jolly nice time while they're doing it I think I think there there's a really interesting particular bit of history here um, that I learned about not that long ago about the relationship between football charity matches so soccer and uh, the the development 
of the game and particularly the way in which it became professionalized so football was sort of you know historically stretching back a kind of game played by people in a village um and the rules weren't really codified or agreed on they were very highly localized they would play often on sort of particular feast days or celebration days uh, shrove tuesday was always a big one which is uh, good given the timing of this going out and you know villages would kind of come together beat you know seven shades of hell out of each other uh, in the name of, of sport ostensibly and then probably have a feast and everybody would go home and it's only really as we start to get into the the 19th century that uh, moves are made to kind of put this on a more uh, rigorous footing and to kind of standardize some of the rules around football and make it a game that that is kind of more consistent between different areas and in doing that obviously part of that is about the formation of the football association or sort of various different football associations to agree what those rules might be and then to start to think about actually how could you have more structure around sport and that's something we'll just come back on to in a moment but in terms of uh, fundraising there was a, a very strong history for right from the outset of um, charity matches so sort of fundraising matches that would be set up the the local teams would play in these and they would be kind of deliberately to raise money for charity this was often linked to sort of particular disasters there might be kind of local industrial disasters or they might be national disasters so for instance after the titanic sank in 1912 um, there was a big uh, charity benefit match uh, played between Woolwich Arsenal as it was then and obviously Arsenal have moved since then and Tottenham Hotspur to raise money for the Titanic uh, Disaster Relief Fund which is uh, a whole other story that we might come on to in a different podcast at some other time but there's also a sense uh, in which they they were kind of more generally about solidarity so um, just there's a really interesting couple of papers on this by um, Ray Vamplu and and Joanna Kay but so they say in one of these papers say so disaster funds were only part of the connection between philanthropy and football in an age of limited state intervention Victorian social welfare was founded on private charitable enterprise orphanages hospitals and convalescent homes all relied on regular voluntary subscriptions and donations while economic depression and unemployment were alleviated by privately resourced soup kitchens and distress relief funds football contributed to all these in May 1877 Glasgow Rangers played a match which raised 30 pounds in aid of the unemployed in the weaving village of New Milnes. Uh, in the 1878-79 uh, season a charity tournament was played under electric light which although the illumination was quote far from what was desired raised 50 pounds for the Glasgow unemployed fund uh, in 1893 then Everton played a match to raise funds to help the destitute families of cotton trade operatives thrown out of work leading the athletic news which was a newspaper at the time to comment it is pleasing to know that football can be devoted to charitable purposes the following season Walsall played a match for the mayor's distress fund and it says in 1908 when the west of Scotland faced its worst industrial slump since the 1870s with unemployment rising to over 20% the Glasgow Charity Cup Committee gave £200 to the Glasgow Unemployed Distress Relief Fund and £25 for the same cause in Govan and Partick uh, while the, the SFA so the Scottish Football Association at the time donated £500 to similar funds throughout Scotland so you can see there was all kinds of stuff going on and it was interestingly quite often linked to um, particular kind of issues in the local area often sort of ones to do with challenges facing the working class who would probably make up the player base um, and also the fan base of many of these clubs so there's a real sort of sense of <clears throat> solidarity I think at play there uh, as well as charity um, and coming back to what we were, were saying earlier about the role of uh, individual sports people as philanthropists it's interesting to note in in this same paper that actually even that early on there was a sense that people looked to some of those players to, to lead the way in terms of their their behaviour 
behavior and and their donations even at a time when you know these people were really not earning very much money for for their playing and they certainly weren't earning what could be called a living but it says an editorial in a leading sports journal in 1880 argued that quote our football players if only they had the inclination have the power to enrich many of our needy institutions some at least were so disposed and in the early 1880s the scottish football association gave public thanks to all the players who took part in the glasgow charity cup for the ready and cheerful way in which they responded to the appeal made to them says these of course were amateurs but as was pointed out by an old player in 1902 it must not be forgotten that professional players have throughout been prominent in contributing to deserving charities Uh, individuals such as billy meredith uh, later a stalwart of the players union helped out their fellow professionals by playing in their benefit games so you know players were already being looked to 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 show and to demonstrate sort of philanthropic behavior Um, and as it, it says there in that quote some of that was sort of benefit matches that were aimed at supporting other players um, uh, after their careers were over because obviously they probably would be very unlikely to have earned enough money to support them throughout the rest of their life and um, but it's sort of really interesting to see that that was an important part of the development of the game and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment when we come to, to look at the, the historic relationship between voluntary action and clubs but just to say you know in terms of how this has developed I guess there are all sorts of different ways in which we see sport relating to fundraising these days um, so we still see sports people obviously doing fundraising and there's still you know kind of rich tradition of testimonial matches as well although at the highest level i guess these nowadays tend to be more charity testimonials rather than raising money for the individual players themselves. And there's also a pretty strong tradition of um, players who have retired from a game, or not not always, but doing other sports or other kind of physical challenges to raise money for for charity. So in rugby, people like uh, former Wales players Richard Parks did a challenge where he went all around the world and climbed all of the highest peaks uh, to raise lots of money for charity, and has been doing many other challenges since, I think. Uh, And then very recently, David James, uh, former Wales and British Lions player um, has been doing a sort of series of you know marathons or ultra marathons I think um, consecutively to uh, raise lots of money for charity and I think this blurs an interesting line I guess between sports people doing sport as a means of fundraising and a kind of broader uh, trend towards celebrities doing it because similarly there are quite a few celebrities who through things like sport relief have taken up challenges um, kind of physical sporting challenges uh, and actually you know done them very impressively but become very well known for that kind of thing and gone on to do many more of them so people like David Walliams swimming the Thames and John Bishop doing all kinds of physical challenges Eddie Izzard um, doing many many uh, marathons and actually you know raised huge amounts of money and and because Become very well known for that um, and I guess these sort of blurred lines again go to um, other things you can see throughout history so there's always been a, a, yeah, a kind of trend of having uh, pro celebrity um, football games which still goes on today through sport relief similarly in golf that's always been something there's been a sort of charity games where a professional will play with a celebrity or with an amateur and I guess thinking about you know just the ordinary people like you or I um, the, the most well known I guess is running events which have always been big um, ever since, you know, the London Marathon, the Great North Run and that kind of thing. There's many, many more of them now, all of the sort of 10Ks that are used for for fundraising and and shorter runs as well. Uh, And many people have taken part in these, actually, when you look at the figures for who's who's done them and how much money they've raised, it's very impressive. I think that's an interesting um, one just to to round off on in terms of fundraising, because it raises a particular point in the context of the pandemic, which is that those kinds of fundraising have been particularly hard hit um, and actually organizations that have become heavily reliant on sports-based fundraising have found 
you know, things that they would rely on as almost a kind of one big shot of income for the year when those are no longer possible because we're all having to follow social distancing measures and other kind of lockdown measures. Actually, that's had a huge impact on the finances of lots of, of organisations. OK, so I just want to shift on um, before we finish to to think a bit about the, the nature and role of sporting clubs. Um, so I think there's something really interesting about the idea of the club as an organisational form and the role it played in, in kind of putting structure in sport and how that relates to developments within charity. So I think when you look at the relationship between voluntary association and sort of sport or leisure when you look back into the kind of earlier 19th century um, and I'm, I'm using here quite a lot of um, insight from a book by Robert Snape which is called Leisure Voluntary Action and Social Change in Britain 1880 to 1939 which I recently got and is really fascinating but he sort of outlines the fact that in that earlier period leisure became a focus for philanthropy but it was in a very paternalistic way so it was about kind of imposing rational recreation on the working classes and sort of finding things for working class people to do with their spare time that were deemed to be acceptable and sort of worthwhile by their social betters in the middle and upper classes. Um, but then as you go on throughout um, that, uh, that, throughout the 19th century, this there starts to become a sort of awakening generally of a, of a broader working class identity. Um, and you see this in the, for, the growth of sort of mutual associations or associations based more on ideas of mutual aid and solidarity. And this is something we talked about in the last podcast episode, actually. And particularly things like the growth of friendly societies were were very notable examples. But this was also true in terms of um, sporting associations and clubs. And I guess, you know, it's an interesting one in that this plays into the sort of broad idea that Alexis de Tocqueville put forward that kind of association has benefits for democracy inherently because it kind of brings people together. Though Snape says here, uh, he says, as Gorski notes, um, these clubs and associations also encourage spatial identification with a local community, providing the good of social insurance while promoting civic engagement and a collective attitude to social welfare. Most importantly, in terms of community formation, they nurtured the acts of listening, discussing and voting, skills that were viewed as essential to the foundations of any democratic community. Um, and this is a point also made by R.J. Morris in the work he's done on um, voluntary associations and clubs. So he gives a really interesting example about the way in which all of the kind of interactions and discussions that led to the codification of football actually showed the sort of way in which the structures that emerged um, were were useful in allowing people to kind of engage with one another in in more uh, profitable ways because it meant that the, it was sort of took the personal element out of what otherwise might have been very kind of fiery and contentious discussions. And so he says in that, the Northern clubs and Northern football clubs who now played the best football in the game forced their own British association in 18. 18- the FA gave way with remarkable speed. The rule of the game by the gentleman from London was no hegemony. Never say that word. It was an area of class bargaining in which the working class clubs of the North, who had the top players and attracted the largest crowds, had the upper hand. The rugby code was score draw after the professional rugby league broke away. What mattered was that the battle did not take place in terms of legal action or public order campaigns against street football, bull running, dog fighting, or prize fighting. It took place as a series of disputes within and between organizations organisations vying with each other to control property, audiences and memberships. Conflict in sport, as in many other spheres of life, was organised. The limited commitment and adaptive qualities of the voluntary societies made them ideal for carrying contradictory and conflicting values within and between classes. So I've always found that point really fascinating. And this goes on to something um, else that Snape says in his book, which is actually, in in terms of these voluntary associations having this benefit of giving people these civic skills, it's still, uh, he says, so you've got to kind of distinguish between 
between those that are formed for the benefit of members solely and those that have a wider social function. So he says, it's possible to distinguish between leisure associations formed solely for the benefit of their members and those with ulterior social objects. Hobby societies, gardening clubs and sports clubs, for example, are collective groups formed around a particular leisure interest to enable shared enjoyment, increased knowledge and expertise in social intercourse. As expressive associations, they have no consciously adopted instrumental object, but have served historically important sociological functions in enabling social integration and a sense of community. Instrumental voluntary associations, in contrast, aim to produce something of value to others rather than for the specific benefit of their members. So it's sort of saying sports clubs are great and they sort of bring people together and give a sense of community and teach them some of these, you know, skills of civic engagement, but also kind of charities did that as well, but had a purpose that was beyond that and trying to kind of achieve something wider in the world. And I guess the interesting thing is that actually those lines became somewhat blurred um, over time. So uh, it sort of says, and partly this was about actually the kind of the leisure itself was a way of projecting a view about how the world could be. And that was particularly the case, I think, in the sort of late 19th, and early 20th century. So he says, you know, while these leisure based associations were often formed in response to perceived misuses of leisure, which I guess you'd be talking about things like teetotaling, uh, teetotalism campaigns against drinking and campaigns against gambling, they were not simply a means of containing leisure behaviours within normative bounds, but were concerned to promote alternative and sometimes contested social values and moral principles, and were thus implicitly engaged in the process of social reform. So um, I think it's really interesting to note that kind of overlap between the way in which structures were developed within the world of sport to enable people to kind of codify and formalise what was going on there, and also at the same time a lot of similar things were happening in the wider world of kind of charity and and uh, and kind of social action and actually the lines between them are often blurred and then the, finally what I, I just want to talk about um on this section um is to say that actually the relationship ran the other way as well in that the the role of charity which i think we've hinted at already that charity played an enormously important role in the professionalization of many sports as well so we've already said that charity matches were an important part of the sort of history of football but it's that's not just of interest in term as a sort of curio about about charity it actually had a, a kind of determinate effect in terms of professionalizing the game which again Kay and Vamplu uh, talk about in their paper so there was a sort of 15 to 20 year gap between the formation of football associations in the, the latter half of the 19th century and then the formation of leagues so for quite a while they sort of had these football associations but there was still a question about how they would actually find games for all of the teams to play and charity matches and fundraisers became a really big part of of having a reason for teams to play one another so they were very important in terms of sort of giving some early structure to to the idea of a of a season and a playing season and for some clubs actually interestingly their their roots were very much entirely in charity so i didn't know this until recently but celtic so the scottish club celtic so it, it says here so although founded in 1888 to support local catholic charities within a decade it had become a limited company it was declaring dividends of 10% and had virtually ceased to donate to charity in fact the decline in the club's charitable donations dates from 1893 to 1894 coincident with the formal adoption of professionalism in Scottish football. So actually, you know, Celtic started life as uh, as a means of kind of raising money for charity. And over time, as around it, the world of uh, football became more professionalised, that then dropped away. 
but it, you know it played a, an, an incredibly important sort of formative role in in that club's history and then let's just say a little bit about the the situation as we find it today i guess to round things off so obviously the situation in terms of clubs uh, and maybe let's you know stick largely to football here because it's an easy case in point is very different you know modern day clubs are huge enterprises raising enormous amounts of money and and kind of selling uh, merchandise and branding uh, you know across the world and so actually the role of the club when it when we're thinking about charity or philanthropy these days is is very different i mean at a lower level still it is a way for people to come together and there are many many grassroots sports clubs you know all around britain and many other countries performing that role although the gap between them and kind of clubs at the highest level is something that is generally pretty contentious those clubs at the highest level actually i guess we tend to think when we think about philanthropy more about the role that they probably play as a potential corporate donor and actually most clubs nowadays will have sort of csr policies and and approaches and possibly a corporate foundation and things just like any other for-profit business would have i guess it's an interesting question uh, just to throw in about whether actually clubs are even at that level sometimes recipients of philanthropy in some sense in that a lot of them you know rely on having owners with extremely deep pockets who who come in and sort of you know subsidize or underwrite them uh, and in some ways you know is owning a, a football club an act of, of philanthropy i mean it's a highly self-interested one in that obviously there's a lot to be gained in terms of profile and status and connections but it's probably also apart from a very few examples not a great way to make money and i guess it's an interesting sort of analogy with owning a newspaper which again brings lots of benefits to the owner in terms of um, profile and influence and those sorts of things but also there's there are those who would argue that it can be done on a sort of semi-philanthropic basis if there's a belief in the kind of underlying uh, public good that comes through the provision of news and actually if you believe there's a kind of underlying public good in in the provision of of sport um, and kind of maintaining that then I guess if you if you were so minded, you could argue that owning a Premier League football club is an act of philanthropy. Although you might get relatively short shrift if you did. And then finally, I guess the you know the uh, an interesting one is the role that the club, even at that high level, still plays as a kind of anchor within a community and sort of recognizing where those roots come from in terms of um, association and bringing people together. And I think it's quite a lot to focus around this. And lots of clubs are doing quite interesting things in recognition of that. And I think thinking through you know sport as a tool for community cohesion and and therapy and and sort of addressing mental health is is really interesting lots of clubs actually are kind of in places where there are divided communities or high degrees of poverty or inequality actually the shared identity that comes from all supporting the same football club maybe one thing that can bring people from different walks of life or different communities together so actually clubs potentially have a hugely powerful role to play there and also i guess the the final thing to say is it's not just the clubs themselves but it's the the fans that they bring along with them and what they decide to do and there are some fascinating examples of the shared identity of football fans being used as a basis for uh, kind of new approaches to mutual aid and so there's an organization called fan supporting food banks it's here in liverpool where i where i live and it's a it's a sort of joint um, uh, project between fans of liverpool and everton the two big premier league clubs here in the city and they do a lot of joint work sort of supporting food banks obviously in kind of um, uh, impoverished areas around liverpool but also I think they they do work linking up with other fan associations when they're playing games against them and kind of supporting food banks elsewhere as well. So I think there's some fascinating stuff going on there. Okay, well, that that sort of takes us on a... uh, 
whistle-stop tour around all kinds of different aspects around uh, sport and philanthropy. Hopefully that's been of interest. I know it's one where I've kind of ranged far and wide, but, um, uh, you know, I, hopefully some some food for thought in there. I guess my takeaway from, from the whole thing is that it feels to me, having sort of, you know, finally got around to doing an episode about this and bringing what I know about about philanthropy and my long-standing love of sport together that it's kind of an under theorized area an under-researched area I and mean, there's lots of examples of individual sports teams or or individual sports people giving to charity but as i say it's quite difficult often to sort of cut through the marketing puff element of that and get to, to what's going on underneath um so actually i think more thought about this in in a slightly more rigorous way would be hugely valuable because I think bringing together all these different aspects of the relationship between philanthropy and sport creates a really powerful narrative. I think that's also true on the history side where there's some fascinating bits of individual detail to be found but again even more so than lots of other areas of the history of charity they seem to be kind of dotted around here and there and often tied up in you know other areas of the kind of history of sport uh, or in the modern context more around kind of sports management and the idea of sports as a business so they perhaps don't really filter into the world of, of philanthropy as much so I think you know finding some of those and joining the dots between them would be hugely valuable um you know it's an area i'll kind of continue to keep digging into um but you know if anybody else has interesting stories or thoughts please do as ever get in touch uh, on that note um if you're interested in any of the things that i've been saying in the podcast um i'll put links in the show notes to lots of things i've mentioned so check those out if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society do check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website uh, follow me on twitter at rodri uh, underscore h underscore Dave Davis or at Philiteracy if you want stuff that's more about kind of academia and uh, writing on philanthropy. Um, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Bye! Bye.